It was huge. And across the whole nation, 15% of farms disappear during the 1980s. In Iowa, it's closer to 25%. In the upper Midwest, there are states like Wisconsin and Minnesota that lose even more farmers. So lots of farm loss during this decade. This is the Lawyers, Guns, and Money podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Lawyers, Guns, and Money podcast. Uh, this is Eric Loomis, uh, and uh, today uh, I am very, very happy to be speaking to Pamela Riney Kerberg, uh, who is a professor of history at Iowa State University. Um, one of our leading agricultural historians, um, former president of the Agricultural History Society, among other things, um, and is the author of many books, um, a couple of which uh, of the uh, older books include uh, Childhood on the Farm, Work, Play, and Coming of Age in the Midwest, uh, which was published in 2005, um, The Nature of Childhood, an Environmental History of Growing Up in America Since 1865, published in 2014, and even uh, a kid's book, which maybe we'll talk about a little bit, uh, called uh, Always Plenty to Do, Growing Up on a Farm Long Ago, uh, which came out in 2011, which is really cool. Um, but um, today, we are here to talk about uh, Pam's uh, relatively recent book, uh, published in 2022, uh, titled When a Dream Dies, Agriculture, Iowa, and the Farm Crisis of the 1980s, that was published by the University Press of Kansas. Uh, uh, Pam, thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. Could you start by talking about uh, why you decided to write this book and just kind of lay some of the basics out for our listeners? Sure. This book was a long time in coming. Um, I've taught agricultural history to graduate students for many years, and we would touch on the farm crisis, and then they would say, why hasn't there been a book written? And I would say, well, maybe it's not been long enough. You know, maybe we need to think about this a little bit longer. And then I started getting really interested in rural communities in Iowa and wanting to do a project about uh, rural community decline and what's happening in the countryside and realized I could not do that without going back to the farm crisis of the 1980s. Um, and so I decided that it was it was time to do it because you know there is a book by Mark Friedberger called Shakeout, written during the 1980s, which does a nice job of talking about you know farm decision making and things like that. But it was written before the crisis was over, and I really felt like I needed to do a serious deep dive into what was happening in the countryside in those years. And so between pressure from my graduate students and just looking at what was happening out there, I decided I, I had to write something. Makes a lot of sense. Um, and, you know, what is kind of like the, the layout of the book? Like what, what is the book's central argument? The book's central argument is that Iowa farmers were plunged into a situation well out of their control and somehow had to 
struggle their way through the 1980s. And, you know, the, the story follows year by year what happened during those years and highlights some of the real problems that they faced that nobody would even have thought of. Um, in particular, one of the most important threads that I follow throughout the book is food insecurity. Nobody would ever think that a farmer couldn't feed themselves. But given the dramatic changes in agriculture since World War II, there were many Iowa farmers who couldn't feed themselves. And the use of food stamps soared. And so this situation forced people to think very differently about what was happening to them, what was happening to their communities. And unfortunately, um, the outcome was that Iowa had a quarter less farms by the end of the decade than they'd had in you know, the 1970s. And what had happened was a combination of, of what turned out to be decisions in the 1970s that fit that situation, but didn't fit what happened in the 1980s. And then a government that really didn't seem to care a whole lot about what was happening and a state that was forced to scramble and actually had some remarkable moments of bipartisan um, bipartisan caring in the middle of all of this that may be looking back from, you know, a number of years past that we wouldn't have imagined. Yeah, um, there's so much to build on here. Um, but I, I mean, I think I want to start by sort of almost reminding everybody just how serious this was. Um, I mean, you start the book with a suicide. Um, yeah. You know, and that's a, that's a really uh, you know that's a it kind of brings us immediately into just just how terrible this is, and and you know I feel like to a certain extent the farm crisis is not exactly forgotten because I mean it comes up every now and again, um, if for no other reason than Iowa's traditional role in the primary process maybe, but it's not something that is like very much part of our consciousness today. And so, could you talk about just like just the the, the sheer level of tragedy, I guess, that this. Yeah. Two forgotten episode in American history created. It was huge, and across the whole nation, fifteen percent of farms disappear during the nineteen eighties. In Iowa, it's closer to twenty five percent. In the Upper Midwest, there are states like Wisconsin and Minnesota that lose even more farmers. So, lots of farm loss during this decade. And to put it in another way, when you think about all the farmers in Iowa, there were only a third of them who were really safe. And these were largely older farmers, wealthier farmers. They weren't in danger. But there was another third that was teetering and lived every day with the stress of knowing that they were one one drought, one, you know, one bad prop price away from real trouble. And then there were a third who were in imminent danger of losing their land. And they were living with just 
horrible stress. And in Iowa, as across the Midwest, there are these increasing incidences of suicide among farmers, many of them in their late 40s, their 50s, even their early 60s, who have never done anything else in their lives. They've never even ever applied for a job. They've never done anything else in their lives. And they're suddenly being faced with the loss of their, their livelihood. And so, yeah, it does lead to some really tragic events. So I, I guess, you know, maybe it makes sense now to kind of walk us through this a little bit more uh, again, you know, and sort of remind us of the history. Because this this really starts in the 70s where you have this gigantic yes. expansion of, of incentives for farming. Um, and, you know, can, can, you, can you kind of talk about, you know, how the – or sort of the background of, of how the um, – you know, how farmers get into this, into this trouble. It all, well, maybe it doesn't all go back to, but a lot of it does stem from this really strong push in the 1970s to get bigger, get out. Um, Earl Butts was secretary of agriculture and he was pushing farmers to get bigger, get out and to farm from fence row, plow to, from fence row to fence row. Part of the incentive for this is new markets opening up. Um, the United States was selling grain to the Soviet Union and farmers could earn a lot of money if they expanded. And there aren't a lot of disincentives to expansion. There's this USDA rhetoric, but there's also low interest rates. And particularly in the Midwest, their land values are skyrocketing. So they have a lot of collateral and in this situation, a lot of them do what they're being encouraged to do, but also advised to do by their bankers, by their extension agents, by everybody to get bigger. So you've got young guys who are going out there buying their first farm and, and putting all of their new progressive farming ideas into their land. And then you've got old guys who want to bring their children in and they're buying land. Um, and... All of this works just fine as long as they have collateral, basically. Well, what happens in 1979 is that the Fed raises interest rates. There's a, a serious problem with inflation. And so they decide the best way to fight inflation that's going to cause the least political fallout is going to be to crank up interest rates. And there are points at which between 1979 and the early 1980s that interest rates go as high as 25%, which is wonderful if you have money in the bank, but it is rotten if you are a farmer who's trying to manage your farm. And what also happens when interest rates go up, land prices begin to fall because Investors look and they see that they can earn a better return just on a savings account than they can on land. And so this land that had been gaining in value suddenly loses value. And by the middle of, by 84, 85, land values in Iowa, and it doesn't matter what county you're in, have fallen by up between 60 and 66%. Farmers lose their collateral. 
They still have to take out loans. They still have to pay their loans. But they suddenly have no collateral for those loans. They are stuck. And those guys who on advice expanded in the 70s are in desperate trouble. The ones who tried to bring their kids in to buy land for them in desperate trouble. Uh, it's just this very sudden, very intense collapse. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit more about the Carter administration? Um, because, you know, you talk about this happening in 79. Obviously, the interest rates are high. But, you know, the choices, you know, Paul Volcker at, the, you know, who's the chairman of the Federal Reserve, the Carter administration's uh, choice to uh, issue an embargo um, on trade with the Soviet Union after the Soviets invade Afghanistan. Um, all of this has, you know, it, 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 it feels like the Carter administration is engaging in policies without actually thinking through very very deeply how this is actually going to impact large percentage of Americans. I don't know. I don't know if that, if you feel that way, but um, that, that certainly is kind of what I was getting out of it. Right. Uh, I feel like they were trying to choose the path that was going to cause the least political fallout in terms of interest rates. Um, when it came to inflation, you know, another way to fight inflation is to raise taxes, but you know, you raise taxes and every single person in America, well, maybe not every single person, most people are going to be a little bit upset with that. Whereas if you do the interest rate thing, then you are going to get a smaller percentage of the public upset about it. And that's what they decide to do. And you know, farmers by that point are 2% of the public. And you would think, Carter being a farmer, he might have thought a little bit more seriously about what increased interest rates and debt means to farmers. But it seems like there's very little thought of that going on. Um, on the issue of the embargo, um, at first, it really upsets farmers because, you know, Carter said he wasn't going to do that. He flat out told them he wasn't going to do that. And then he does it. Uh, which really upsets them. But fortunately, what ends up happening for farmers is that the United States steps out of the Soviet market, all kinds of other nations step in and then oversell and end up with deficits themselves. And so the United States ends up filling those, those deficits and we actually end up exporting a lot of grain. Um, but in a lot of ways, it's... I think of the whole embargo issue as being um, more of a shock, um, a feeling, it gives people a feeling that nobody listened to them and that Carter actually hadn't listened to what he said to them. They feel betrayed. Yeah. And between that and the interest rate, they really feel betrayed. Yeah. And then, and then we enter into the Reagan years, right? And you know, the, the, uh, farm crisis peaks in the mid '80s, so we're talking about really the the first term of the Reagan years, and then you know slowly we could debate whether it really how much it really improves. But you know how is the, what is the Reagan administration's response to all of this, um, which seems like Carter's tremendously inadequate? It's basically tough luck. Yeah, I mean the USDA goes until I think 1984 denying that there is a problem. And, you know, on the one hand, okay, yeah, 
you can see that because, you know, agriculture fluctuates radically and sometimes there are these short-term corrections, but this is just getting worse and worse. And the USDA is saying, there's not a problem. Um, everybody in the White House, I mean, Reagan's response is basically to laugh it off, to make jokes and to not take seriously what's happening in you know Main Street America, and the it, it's interesting. You can you can watch you know various Republican politicians who have very large agricultural uh, bases in their states stepping back and saying, "This is nuts. Why isn't Reagan listening? Because he's not." Yeah. I mean, I, I, I feel like, and, and, you know, when I, you know, I'm of course a labor historian and an environmental historian too. And, and so, um, you know, and which is part of the reason why I'm familiar with your work in the, in the past, but what, you know, from the labor side, especially, um, you know, it feels like the same story, right? It feels like a story of, you know, the American economy kind of stalling out a little bit in the mid seventies, having its first serious issue since the depression and the rise of neoliberalism and globalization and the responses that Carter makes, which are terrible for labor. Um, and just, he just seems indifferent to them walking in then to a Reagan administration that is openly hostile. Um, and, um, you know, and, and I guess when I look at this period generally, whether I'm thinking of labor, you know, or in the cities and, you know, deindustrialization, or I'm thinking about the farm crisis, I'm really struck by the indifference of leaders of both political parties about what's really happening to what had been the the areas that were the core of the 20th century economy, whether rural or urban. And I'm just wondering if you agree with that or see it that way, or if you see it a little differently. Well, I, I do see a lot of indifference. I mean, in Iowa, they're getting a double-barreled a double-barreled blast. You know, the farm economy is absolutely destroyed by this, but it also destroys Iowa's industrial economy, which is really tightly tied to farms, of course, you know, John Deere and the like. And at the same time as farmers are losing everything, uh, the John Deere plant in Ottumwa is shutting down and, and industrial workers are being thrown out of work. And there doesn't seem to be, I mean, until things get really bad, there doesn't seem to be much of a response. It's just the market has to work itself out. Things have got to work themselves out. Well, were they planning on things working out on this, on this scale? I mean, you could say that, you know, the USDA has been trying to reduce the number of farmers and, you know, make everybody more efficient for decades but did they really plan on doing it this way? I, I have a hard time figuring out whether it was either planned or indifference or malignant indifference. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. What I mean, one one difference I think between um, between the labor movement and you know and and the sort of situations in places like uh, uh, you know urban Michigan or Ohio and the things that you describe and you get into this some is, is the, 
the the kind of ideology of individualism and self you know self reliance um, in the rural community. Um, and can you talk about how like th- these ideologies impacted the ways in which farmers um, dealt with or really were unable to deal with um, the, the economic crisis, losing their land, and all everything that meant? Right, individualism didn't work very well in this situation, and there's a lot of uh, people who suffer alone. Where they do better, I think, is in communities where people decide, you know, I think we need to talk to each other. And I think that we need to work together. And so you get, particularly among smaller farmers, particularly among um, farmers who are more sort of New Deal Democrat, um, a real push to cooperate to protest together, to go to Washington together. And it might not have pushed Washington very far, but it did get the state to pay even more attention than they did. And um, it gave them a way to think of all of this that allowed them to keep going. I mean, if you if you were entirely wedded to the rugged individualism and things go wrong, then you tend to think of it as your fault. And the mental health crisis was horrendous. But if you can join together with other people and say, you know, this isn't just happening to me, it's happening to a third of the farmers in the state, then maybe... Then, then maybe we're going to be okay. Maybe, maybe we can get people to see what is wrong and to cooperate. And so there actually was really good networking done between various farm organizations, between those farm organizations and eventually the state. And the state was able to uh, provide helpful measures and also eventually, eventually to get a better year in Washington. But I think the, the farmers who could get past the whole individualism thing did far better than the ones who just sat at home and stewed about the situation. Well, you know, one of the things that you do explore, and you mentioned this in your intro, is the ways in which um, Iowa begins to see, you know, be- begins to see some pretty significant um, organizing over this and, you know, bipartisan solutions. And, you know, this kind of leads us into a whole other set of questions that maybe we can kind of close with. But can you talk a little bit about how politicians in Iowa across the aisle managed to come together to an extent and create some policies that at least alleviated some of these problems? I am really impressed by the way the governor, Terry Branstad, Republican, um, worked with, you know, Chuck Grassley, Republican senator, uh, but also Tom Harkin, Democratic senator, to talk with more or less one voice on all of this. Uh, They didn't agree on everything, but I'm thinking in particular of a public service announcement that the three of them recorded about... uh, food stamps and about food aid. And all three of them in one voice, in one ad, 
told Iowans who were suffering food insecurity that A, it wasn't their fault, B, that there was help, C, that they should take it. And I was more than a little bit surprised when I found that in a box of documents. You don't think of that kind of work across the aisle uh, and that kind of speaking with a single voice that something had to be done. And, you know, it was a pretty bold move. But by 1985, you know, Republican governor says, we're going to have a moratorium on, on land seizures. And, you know, there was a 19, I forget, 1930, oh, a Great Depression law um, passed that said that, you know, if you want to take someone's land, here are the hoops you have to go to. Um, and they resurrect that. It's Democratic politicians pointing out that this law is still on the books and that they can have a moratorium on foreclosures. Not a complete moratorium, but something that'll slow people down. And, you know, they don't, they don't adopt it immediately. By 1985, though, Grandstad has done it. And then we have Chuck Grassley getting in trouble with the bankers because of a new form of bankruptcy. I don't remember, Title 12 bankruptcy? Um, that is specially written for farmers and basically, you know, says that you're not responsible for the value of your land that was artificially pushed up in the 1970s and that that you have a right to some portion of your land uh, to be able to try and recover some portion of your land, even if it goes into bankruptcy. So there's all kinds of of measures that you just don't necessarily think of as being things that would be bipartisan efforts that are in fact bipartisan efforts in the 1980s. Yeah. Um, well, how does the, let me ask you this. I mean, I think, cause I think it's not in, in totally clear. First of all, does the farm crisis really end? And secondly, you know, of course, it at least alleviates. But um, do you think that the farm crisis truly ended? And if so, what leads what what leads um, to at least somewhat greater stability for those who are still able to farm? No, I don't think it ever ended. Uh, you know, I, I end the book artificially at the floods, the massive floods of '93 because it really is, it is a breaking point and I, I feel comfortable ending the book there. But for rural Iowa and the rural Midwest, it hasn't really ended because they go through crisis after crisis, you know, whether it's a drought, a flood, uh, whether it's, you know, um, you know uh, agricultural embargoes on exports, you know, wherever they might be in the world. Um, the, the economy is constantly up and down. More and more people leave. There's more and more school consolidation, more churches that close. Um, it hasn't really ended. And, you know, there has been perhaps a bit more stability because 
a lot of the smallest farmers lost their land. A lot of people who are sort of middle-sized lost their land, they're out of it. It's largely bigger farmers, more capitalized, but that's just going to create its whole, a whole new set of problems. Because, you know, rural Iowa is old. Rural Wisconsin, rural Minnesota, Minnesota is old. And those people are going to quit farming. And, you know, who's, who's gonna feed us? And what's gonna happen to all of those small communities out there? And, you know, I drive through a lot of them uh, on a regular basis. And it makes me very sad to see how little is left in a lot of places. And you just wonder, you know, how, how do we maintain, how do we maintain a decent life for people in these places? Yeah. Which again, ends up being, you know, you know, a, a question that labor historians have also asked, right. About places like Flint or Detroit or, or Youngstown, or, you know, some of these places have come back, but, but some of them, Including the ones I've mentioned, if not, um, and you know, I, I just feel like, you know, the the political climate um, over the last half century, you know, has really still not been able to articulate an answer for either rural America or for um, you know the old industrial cities. I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. And and I think that we, you know, one way to close this then is to think about Iowa now, right? I mean, you know, because where Iowa is getting publicity and the sort of the, the the media is the fact that it has moved so far to the right in the last 15 years, right? I mean, you know, of course, you know, it, it and I guess rural Minnesota and Wisconsin were along with Vermont, the last sort of white rural areas that voted for Democrats at least or at least where Democrats were competitive. And you know, that has changed radically in all of these places. Minnesota has Minneapolis, St. Paul big enough to maybe cover that. Wisconsin is very close, but of course, Iowa now is an extremely red state. And I'm wondering if what we can understand about um, the farm crisis and the continued um, struggles of rural America to maintain itself and how maybe that has contributed to the growth of far-right politics in places such as Iowa? I think when people feel left behind and excluded, which they certainly felt in the 1980s, uh, it, it leaves them flailing about for answers. And I don't think the answers they've found have always been productive answers. You know, when I moved to Iowa in 2000, it was definitely a purple state. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, and that was one of the things I loved about it. Um, when, when you export so many of your young people, which Iowa does, uh, rural communities export virtually all of their young people, um, I think it becomes it becomes rather difficult for new ideas and for um, for change to take hold. It's just a very difficult situation. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, that's that, that's a, that's a that's a great answer, and I think that's an appropriate place for us to close. Um, and so I wanted to uh, thank you again, Pam, for uh, joining us today. And thank you so much for having me. Again, we've been t- uh, speaking to uh, Pamela Riney Kerberg um, about her 2022 book, When a Dream Dies: Agriculture, Iowa, and the Farm Crisis of the 1980s. Uh, which you should all pick up if you have any interest in um, understanding some of the uh, some of the important antecedents to contemporary politics. Um, and uh, I cannot recommend it highly enough. So um, we'll be back soon uh, with another Lawyers, Guns, and Money podcast. Thank you all very much for listening. Thank you again for listening to the Lawyers, Guns, and Money podcast. We would like to thank Elizabeth Nelson of the Paranoid Style. For supplying, as our intro and outro music, I'd Bet My Lands and Titles, a track on the album For Executive Meeting. If you would like to support the Lawyers, Guns, and Money podcast or any other aspect of the Lawyers, Guns, and Money project, please visit us at www.patreon.com slash lawyersgunsandmoney or donate at the PayPal link on the website. Thank you. Thank you.